I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Chad. Morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? Okay. It's exciting. Uh, If you are new here, we're glad that you're here. My name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, We are, maybe Cody mentioned this, uh, we are one church with 10 congregations, and we are the Arcadia expression of Redemption Church. And we are uh, in the third and last week of a little mini-series that's part of a much longer and bigger series that we are doing the first 10 months of 2017 in the book of Acts. We're going through the entire book of Acts. But we've done this little mini-series for the last three weeks. It kind of ends today. We call it the incident, uh, an incident at the temple, and today's part three. It's a continuation of the chapter three and chapter four narrative that ends in, chap- in verse 31 of chapter four <clears throat> that starts with the healing of this guy who hadn't been able to walk since he was born, and then the people being amazed in the subsequent preaching and proclamation of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus by Peter. Uh, Peter and John's arrest by the ruling religious council in Jerusalem, the professional religious people, they got very upset about all of this, and so they arrested Peter and John, they held them overnight in jail. The next morning they had a a hearing where the the council's hands were kind of tied as to what they could do, and so they decided to warn Peter and John to quit speaking about uh, Jesus and in the name of Jesus and about uh, his resurrection, and so... Then they're released, and today is what happens right after the release of Peter and John. And I would suggest that it might be the most important part of uh, the story. So let me pray before we get into it, and then we'll dive right in. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for who you are. And we are thankful just the same way that that Peter and John and the rest of the church started uh, their prayer. We're thankful for your sovereignty, your majesty, uh, your grace. Uh, We're thankful that uh, you are uh, the one who holds everything in your hands. We're thankful for your son, that you sent him to live and to die, to be resurrected, and that he's coming again, and to save us from our sins, and to uh, make us new creations, and to give us uh, eternal life in you. And we're thankful for your Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit in everyone who knows you through your son Jesus, the filling of God in us. And we're thankful for your word and its truth. And I pray that, that uh, as we look at your word, uh, that w- we would have our, our hearts and our minds open, and that our eyes and our ears would be open to your truth, and that, 
and that I'm just the conduit and, and really just making commentary and that everything that is not of you, I just pray you'd move out of the way so that the that people here today, myself included, could hear you and you only. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So today it's going to be a little bit uh, different than what we've been doing as we go through Acts. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread um, the passage and make a few comments as we read just to make sure we have the context and, the, and sort of the historical setting uh, correct. And then almost everything we're going to do today is application. I've got what I like to call takeaways. We have six takeaways from this passage today that actually apply to us today, I, I believe, as I've studied. And, and for those of you who like to take notes, and I know there are a number of you, right now you're very excited because you have six things that you get to write down. Um, the rest of you are really worried about how long this is going to take because <laughs> six is a lot. Well, maybe I can help you a little bit. Um, until last week, I had 11. So I was going to actually go through 11 things, and I, I cut it down. There's some things in the passage that we've already covered before, and so I left them. Anyway, I got it down to six. So um, here's the big idea. Church is not an event to attend, but a family to participate with and join. And... and and like all families, sometimes this family gets a little rowdy, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, family can be really, really challenging. In fact, if you're in a family where there's absolutely no conflict, you're just stuffing it and covering over it. That's, that's, that's really the reality of it. I, when I do premarital, one of the things I'll ask is, and we go through a lot, is um, you know, conflict resolution and theory about conflict and things like that, how to handle it in a gospel-centered way. And, and I'll ask the couple fairly early on, so what are your conflicts like? How, how do you argue? And, and occasionally I'll get, you know, a couple, they're just so excited. We never have any conflict, you know. And then I tell them, well, you're not ready to get married then. So, I mean, that's just the truth. So, so, I, so I, anyway, try to draw them out into some conflict. Okay, now you can get married. You're mad at each other. That's good. All right, so. We do it a little bit different here at Redemption Church. Maybe I'll just reread the passage now and move on. How's that? <laughs> All right, here you go. When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends. They went to the church. So they go back to the church now, and they, report what the, they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So uh, this is a pattern that you see occasionally in the book of Acts. Something will happen like this, and then uh, the people that it happens to, they'll go and report to the church. And, and it's just interesting how the church always responds to things like this. And when they heard it, when the church heard what had happened to Peter and John, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I want you to notice that in this language here, this language of uh, lifting their voices and Sovereign Lord, this is literally language of praise. They are pr starting their prayer with praise. They're praising God for who he is and what he has done. That's what that language uh, indicates there. And so it's helpful for us to know that. And then verse 25 begins to help us with an understanding of how they know their history. And also they know what David wrote in Psalm 2 and how prophetic Psalm 2 was a thousand years earlier when King David wrote Psalm 2. So in verse 25, it says, who, 
through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, so the Spirit filled David to write these psalms. And this is part of Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That, 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 okay, so this is a Greek interpretation of the original Hebrew in the Old Testament. It's interesting, the plot in vain words there literally mean, why did the people's turn themselves to silly schemes or ridiculous schemes, schemes that could never possibly work against the sovereign. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So now, obviously, they're taking this a thousand years uh, forward and saying they're doing this to Jesus and those who follow Jesus, the church. And, then, and they make that connection here. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever, now get this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, we are reminded that all of this is happening because God did it. It was his plan. He purposed it. He predestined it. He knew it was going to happen. He was never taken by surprise. And as a result, this is interesting, Peter and John never seem to be taken by surprise anything, uh, uh, by anything. They are taken by surprise by lots of stuff prior to the resurrection. But since the resurrection, they've become different people. They've realized that God is working in this. They're no longer surprised at anything. They're not surprised at the persecution they're receiving. They're not surprised at the miracles and signs and wonders that God has been working. They're not surprised at anything. And consequently, they're kind of calm about all of this stuff. A lot calmer than we might be in the midst of it. So they say, you did all of this, God. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it's interesting. They said, continue with the signs and wonders, and right away, they have one. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. So God is saying, okay, I'm here with you. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here you go. Six takeaways. Why these things should matter to us today. Number one, when facing opposition, challenges, oppression, and injustice, the church prayed first. They prayed first. Notice they didn't, immediately when they heard about it, they didn't call CNN or Fox or MSNBC. They didn't create a hashtag. They didn't circulate a petition. They didn't strategize. They prayed first. And they prayed that they would be able to continue to proclaim the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't call the media, we shouldn't have a hashtag, we shouldn't circulate a petition, we shouldn't strategize, but the way we usually do it is we do all of those things and then we say something like, well, maybe we should bathe this in prayer. Or we've done everything we, we can do, now maybe, maybe we should invite God into this. That's the way we pray. And what usually gets lost in the midst of all of this is the proclamation of the gospel. They pray, they proclaim the gospel, and then they do other things. They prayed first. They treat prayer as if it means something and does something. Listen, you and I individually, and the church corporately, by the way, but you and I individually, if we don't have this pattern established in our life already, we're in trouble when crisis comes. If we don't pray first now, 
during the daily routines of life, when crisis comes, we won't think to pray then either. And, and we need to be people who pray and pray first. This is really important. And I know I've heard people say many, many times, uh, I, when I pray, I don't feel like it's doing anything. Yes, it is doing something. Prayer is doing something. Here you go. If prayer isn't doing anything, then you and I, when we say that, we are saying that we don't trust God and we don't believe that he's the one with power. It's that prayer's not doing anything. Well, then you don't believe that he's the one who has the power. In, in fact, I would say that when we behave this way, what we're doing is we're still just worshiping ourselves and believing in ourselves. In other words, it's functional humanism. We say we believe in Jesus, but it's functional humanism. And something else this clearly demonstrates in, in a more um, meta-narrative way, but it reminds us again how they came together, and they're, they're fellowshipping, they're praying, they're referencing the scriptures, so they're teaching. I assume there was probably food there. But the church is not an event to attend. But it is a family to participate with and join. And it is not always easy. Okay? We talk about dysfunction in families. It seems to me that every family has dysfunction. Every family in, in the Bible has dysfunction. Uh, somebody once said it this way, and I've appropriated it as much as possible. Community is not all cupcakes and muffins. Amen? I mean, cupcakes and muffins are good, but it's not always like that. They are praying, fellowshipping, learning together, but here you go. They're also challenging each other. They're spurring one another on, and yes, they disagree from time to time. When we get to Acts chapter 15, it's, it's going to tell us that uh, between Paul and Barnabas, such a sharp disagreement arose between them. This is one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat anything, and it doesn't give us this impression that, that the life of faith is just so perfect and idealistic, that there's going to be challenges. And by the way, while I'm in this neighborhood, I'll, I'll do a couple of while I'm in the neighborhoods today. Uh, let me just mention this about feeling connected at a church. We hear this all the time. We wrestle with this all the time as a church staff. Uh, all of Redemption does. You know, people say, I, I was at that church for six months and I never really felt connected. Okay, you, you need to understand, feeling connected in a church or in a community or in a family Let's say you get married and you're the new person in a family. That takes time and it takes effort. And if you don't feel connected after six months, our answer is kind of, duh. It takes here, here you go. This is this. I was the pastor of this church. I've been for five years, more than five years. I was the pastor of this church in my third year. Now, here you go. I'm not coming just on Sundays. And maybe attending an event or two every now and then. I work here every day. Okay? And it wasn't until somewhere in my third year that I felt connected. That's just the truth of the matter. And I, and I would analyze one of the reasons this way. Here you go. One of the reasons is because um, the, the connectivity that we have through digital communication is amazing. And it is wonderful. But it also gives us incredibly 
false expectations about how what I call flesh-on-flesh community really works. You can feel connected in a community online in hours, maybe even less. You can find uh, people who think alike, people to celebrate with, people to commiserate with. You can find that stuff so easily online, but in person, in flesh-on-flesh in, in relationships, this just takes time. And a lot of it is trial and error, hit and miss, until you actually start to fall into a really solid community and a feeling of connectivity. So whether you're here and disappointed with the connectivity or you're, you're going to jettison and, and move somewhere else... Let me just save you a lot of time and that next church you go to, a lot of aggravation. Stay there for a while before you say you didn't feel connected. And six months is not a while. It takes time to truly feel uh, connected. Here's the second observation. By the way, my prayer about these applications, I forgot to mention this, uh, is that you would feel both convicted and comforted. So right now we're sort of in that convicted area, okay? Number two, they praised God, they lifted their voices for something that we find strange. They were persecuted for their faith. There isn't even a hint of victimhood or entitlement in their prayer. And they're not lamenting some imagined loss of power. Oh, we used to have all this power and now our power is being taken from. You ever think about what, what true, genuine Christian power is? What is real Christian power. It's not having your way in all your relationships. It's not always getting your way at work. It's not always having the political world go your way. That's not genuine Christian power. Genuine Christian power is submitting to God and trusting his wisdom, power, and will in all things, especially when they're not going your way. What credit is it to you to, to, to have power when it's easy? Number three, they prayed not for the demise of their enemies, nor for their own personal safety, but for boldness and faithfulness. They weren't polarizing, nor were they polarized, nor were they trying to be polarizing. They weren't trying to be edgy or clever or self-righteous. They were praying. And their prayer was pretty simple. When you wrap it up at the end, the prayer was pretty simple. God, you keep working so that we might keep proclaiming. That's their prayer. Number four, even as they are persecuted and treated unjustly, they address God as their Lord, their King, their Master, and Sovereign. You know, it's two or three times in that passage, they refer to Jesus as the holy servant, okay? Here's what this tells us. They understand that God is the God who sends both the sunshine and the rain. They understand that their relationship with God is not dependent on how easy their life is. I know so many people that their relationship with God is really dependent on how easy things are for them, and that's just not true. Number five, signs and miracles confirm who Jesus is and that God has the power and deserves all the glory. Shouldn't we be praying for God's signs and wonders and miracles? 
Shouldn't we be praying for that? It's, the answer is yes, we should. Why don't we? Why don't we press into that the way the early church did? I've read a lot of essays on this from scholars who know a lot more about this stuff than I do. And, and here's, their, here's their conclusion. They, they say there's really three reasons why we don't. Number one, in, in, and by the way, we're talking about America in the, in the United States. It, the Christians in America, in, in the public sphere and in public education and, and, and anywhere else that we go, number one, we've been taught that we can do and fix anything ourselves. We can fix it. We can do it. If, if we conceive it and believe it, we can achieve it. Okay, what's the emphasis on there? Us. It's pure humanism. Second reason is that really we have so many worldly resources, so many worldly resources that frankly we don't need God. That's what we think. We don't think God can do any good anyway. And third, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, ultimately most of us really just want the miracles to be about us and not about God. The miracles are point us, the, the reason miracles happen is because they point us to Jesus and give him the glory. We, we would like that glory. We're going we're gonna to see next week what happens when people purposely steal glory from God. It's not a pretty sight. Okay? And we need to remember that there are, there, there are all kinds of miracles going on in, in the world today. Most of them happen to, be, uh, happen to be taking place in Africa and South America where people don't have what we have. And haven't been told what we've been told. We do have miracles here today still, though. And I want you to see this. Every time someone gives their life to Jesus and is baptized, that is a miracle. The only way that happens is because God has intervened. A miracle is an intervention. It's an intervention of what naturally happens, supernaturally changing the course resulting in awe and supposedly glory for God. When somebody comes to Jesus, that's an intervention in somebody's heart and mind. They now believe the gospel. That's a miracle. There's other miracles too. I'm shocked at the number of stories I hear from Redemption Arcadia and all the other redemption churches where people are in very serious and dire financial need. I mean, it's not like I'm 10 days late for my car payment. I'm talking about they're on the brink of complete disaster. They're homeless and, and they don't know where they're going to... Things like that. Where people have, have been led by God to, to provide for them. God intervenes in people's lives to go and help. There's just story after... We call them at Redemption Church, we call them God stories because God intervened. But I will also tell you corporately, God intervenes corporately too. I know some of you are sick and tired of hearing of this. It's still an amazing thing to me. The fact that we are even on this property is a miracle. God intervened for us to have this property. It's that simple. And we're not the only ones. Has anybody ever gone to our Alhambra congregation in the last couple of years? Anybody? anybody? I'm not trying to drive you over there, but you should check it out. Uh, a couple of years ago, their, their, uh, their congregation sits on five and a half acres and they have a bunch of buildings, and they, oh, by the way, they have a gymnasium. I don't know if anybody knew. They have a gymnasium over there. They're starting a community center, okay? 
That five and a half acres and all the buildings donated to us by the American Lutheran Church. God intervened in the board of the American Lutheran Church, called Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, and said, we want the gospel to continue on this property, and we know that churches don't have the money to just buy property for its market value. Would you like it? <laughs> that was their question. Now, there, there had to be some work done to the property for sure, but it's just amazing. If you look at our Tempe campus, the same thing. We have a little over 10 acres there. There's no way we could own that property right there if God hadn't intervened and made it affordable for us. We got, we got that, just like this property here, we got Tempe at such a low price that people call also about the Tempe uh, congregation and wonder, could we pay you money to just take that property off your hands? Double or triple what we paid for it. We also have the same thing going on at our Scottsdale congregation now. They're going through the same thing. They're in Scottsdale Presbyterian, and there's a lot of things happening there that have already actually happened. As I understand it, they're paying $100 a month in rent to be able to meet there. And they're working towards possibly being able to have a permanent Home. It's just been amazing. How Here you go. Intervention is essential to God's provision. And the only one who can intervene like that is God. That's a miracle. And number six, we are called by God's power and filled with the Holy Spirit to live with perseverance, patience, steadfastness, empathy, and compassion, especially when things are really tough. Otherwise, what's the point Anybody can live with those qualities when it's easy. You realize that, don't you? Anybody can do that. I, I love the movie. I, I, I misnamed the movie earlier. It was awful. I love the movie A League of Their Own. Anybody seen that movie? I, 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 I called it Major League. That, that's not the movie. A League of Their Own. I love that movie. I love the movie so much that I didn't know the name of it. Anyway, um, I love that movie. Gina, Gina Davis and Tom Hanks about the... the, the the Women's Professional Baseball uh, League. And um, there comes a point, Gina Davis is obviously the best player in the league, and she decides towards the end of the year to quit, and they're on their way to a champion, potential championship. Tom Hanks is the manager of the team, and he's beside himself. His best player is quitting. So he finds her, and he confronts her, and he says, why did you quit? And she said, it just got too hard. And... and Jimmy, Jimmy Dugan, that's his character's name, he said, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, then everybody would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Well, we'll understand, God calls us to do hard things. Why? Because he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And if it weren't for his Holy Spirit, then everybody would do it. That's the difference, and we need to remember this. This is about the filling of the Holy Spirit, God in us, the resurrected Christ, and it's going to be hard. And the only way we can do it is because he's empowering us. Jesus, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says, you know, if you only love people who love you back, what credit is that to you? Any schmuck can do that, but you need to love people who don't love you back, who are unlovable. Because I loved you when you couldn't love me back. I loved you as a sinner. That's the truth of it. So I want to wrap up. I got a ways to go. You're like, oh, wow, that was quick. No. 
I want to I end that number six, okay, that in the midst of all this persecution, they're, they're persevering, they're patient, they're steadfast, they're compassionate, they have empathy. I, I want you to think about this. What is, what is real persecution? What is real persecution? This has been my experience. So a little bit, a lot of autobiography here, but, but it, I, I've been assembling this for a long, long time, and, and I think that I can speak with some level of credibility on this. This has been my experience, I feel like. Um, most of us perceive persecution, and then we respond pretty much with anger and rage. So here's some things that I've literally had to have conversa- lots of conversations about. The last couple of years, the number of people who uh, have talked about the uh, Starbucks holiday coffee cups, okay, we're being persecuted because of those, okay? Okay, I get it. You, you might be offended. I, I understand you might be but really, come on, it's a coffee cup, okay? So uh, you, you understand there's, there's Lux, there's Lucy's, there's Cartel, there's the Henry. If you don't like it, go there, okay? Um, what about all the mocking and caricature in, in, the, in the public sphere of Christians? I mean, that's offensive. Yeah, it's offensive. I don't like it. I don't like those zingers. My feelings get hurt sometimes. It's not fun. But again, I mean, most of the time, really, I just shrug my shoulders and go on. But there are people really deeply centered in this. Here's another one. Someone doesn't share your political position. All the air just got sucked out of the room. It's awesome. All right. While I'm in the neighborhood. I want to take a few minutes here. I I think it's time for us to talk. You should see your faces right now. (laughs) Oh, wow. All right. Here we go. Okay. I'm asking for some grace from y'all. Okay? And I can't cover everything. We can't go into this, like, for four hours. Praise Jesus. Amen? Okay. So, anyway... Um, but, but I want you, I just, I'm inviting you to relax and settle in and just try to listen. Um, I, I am your shepherd, I'm your pastor, and there's, there's times when, as your leader, uh, I, I want to be able to address things like this and have a conversation about it. I'm not, I don't want to, I, I really don't want to uh, use the goad on you. I just, I just want to talk to you about some of this stuff that's been going on, because I'm susceptible to this stuff as well. You need to understand that. And I've had to catch myself as well. But, but this is something that I, I'm certain about. And I'm not the only one who's made this observation. Read some Russell Moore if you need help. It has become crystal clear to me as I deal with, in the last few months, more disunity in the church than I dealt with in the first 20 years of my vocational ministry. Just in the last few months, more than the first 20 years in my vocational ministry. It has become crystal clear to me that the new false god in America, and not just in America, but in the church, in the church, is politics. This is our false god now. it's, It's our political party and our candidates. We are worshiping at the altar of our political party and our candidates. It's it's our political policies and positions and opinions. We're worshiping at that altar. And here you go. This is fascinating. I I had a conversation with a couple of the elders about this. 
And they brought this up to me. Not only are we worshiping at those altars, but we are now worshiping at the altar of the intensity with which we embrace, worship, love, and serve these idols in politics. So now an idol has actually become how intense we are. We call it passion, but it's intensity. And it's really challenging. Uh, The number of times just recently that I've heard someone say, that they can no longer be in fellowship with another believer in Jesus Christ because of the way they voted is nothing short of stunning. I am absolutely blown away. We are breaking fellowship over how you voted. We're breaking fellowship. I was meeting last week with a pastor friend of mine. No, it was not Tom Schrader. I have other pastor friends. (laughs) He's a little older than me, um, has a church of about 1,500 people, and he's experiencing the exact same thing. And he said this, today when I walk in a room, I'm just trying to find the adult. And sometimes it's pretty hard to find one. I was having breakfast with another pastor last week, uh, Tuesday morning. He pastors uh, up in the Northeast Valley. He's actually, you know, kind of felt the heat from Redemption Peoria. (laughs) Anyway, um, I know him because he's a former student of mine at Fuller Seminary. He took my communication classes. Very good, very good communicator. And we were meeting and talking about this. And we were talking about how, remember when, when what we fought about at church was music and Calvinism? Remember those days? Those were the good old days. Now, when we were fighting about music and Calvinism, we hated it. But now we're going, okay, let's just go back to the music and Calvinism. And if you're a musical Calvinist, that's really exciting, okay? But, okay, all this is telling me is that Jesus really isn't our God. Politics is. All of us. We have, maybe we haven't been involved in any of, this, but we're, any of these conversations, but we're certainly feeling it. And here you go. I'm not saying that politics aren't important or that politics are outside of the purview of the gospel and Jesus. All of life is all for Jesus. He reigns and rules over all of this, including the politics. That should, that should make you think about this a little bit. Maybe we don't have all the answers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be engaged. We should be, if anybody should be engaged, it should be Christians, right? But here you go. It's better to be engaged than enraged. And I will tell you, you will win the hearts and minds of way more people, and God will use you way better if you're engaged and not enraged. That might be a pretty good t-shirt, by the way. Somebody ought to take that up for us. The Bible and Jesus speak to these things. In fact, over the last uh, three or four months, we have been speaking to them. It's been in in our passages. We've dealt with this stuff. We've talked about many of these things. But the Bible also tells us how to think and conduct ourselves in the midst of potential disunity. And there's a lot of that right now. So while we can point to the Bible and say... Jesus calls us to do this and calls us to do this and calls us to do this. I don't feel like we've looked at these scriptures at all in the midst of this, so I want to remind you of these scriptures as well. Here you go. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Do not overcome evil with evil. Take every thought captive to Christ Jesus. The love of Christ constrains us. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples because we love one another. Out of the overflow of the heart, the fingers pound on the keyboard. A little conflation there. He said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the way a lot of us speak, though, now, is through digital communication. And that's good, but be careful. As, as a shepherd, and that's really what I'm, I'm called to be a prophet and a shepherd. I'm talking as a shepherd right now. I would really like to believe that Christians on both sides of the political aisle truly love and want to help all people in the margins, those people that God tells us we must help because of the love that's been given to us, because of the blessing that's been given to us. We must care for them regardless of political leanings. They've been called the quartet of the vulnerable. It's the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners. And by the way, let me mention this just for a minute. Uh, The quartet of the vulnerable, of those four, which one almost always gets left out? It's the widows. It's the widows. Just a little reminder of that. Now, I also want to believe that all this animosity about policies and positions and elected officials is because we love Jesus. But I, frankly, have come to the conclusion that I have on my rose-colored glasses and that our true gods are political. Let me ask you some questions. Are we driven by love or by fear? Are we driven by anger or by empathy? Are we driven by a desire to be right or a commitment to be compassionate? Do we want to make a point or make a difference? Are we filled with ourselves or are we filled with the Holy Spirit? And whether we like the outcome or not, will we submit to God's sovereignty in this area? Things feel like they're out of control, don't they? You need to remember they are out of our control, but they're not out of God's control. And that's the good news. The truth is we are called to love God and to love our neighbor. And that's in Leviticus 19 and Matthew 22. Look it up and read those passages. We are called to love God and love our neighbor. That's how Jesus sums up all of the commandments. And here's how people at Redemption Church love God and love their neighbor. Some, not everybody, because we're all gifted and wired differently, but some people will do it through redemption, foster care, and adoption. And for those of you that are doing that, good for you. That is a hard path, I know. Good for you. I'm glad you're called to do that. And we want to support you in that. Some people love God and love others through loving and serving refugees. That's not easy either. And you might even be ridiculed for that. Some people love God and love others by helping the immigrant. Some do it through prison ministries. Some do it through prayer. Some do it by writing a check. Because that's literally all they can do. And thank God they can. And some people do it 
by serving in the church so that those who have the gifts to be able to serve outside of the church are released to go and do that. You're a part of this as well, inside the church, serving the church. But I will say this, none of this, not any of these things I just listed, none of it depends on your political position or your intensity. It depends on Jesus, the gospel, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Do we not realize, or do we not remember, that in the gospel, when Jesus was calling his 12, that one of the guys he called was Matthew, who was Jewish, but who had decided to sell out to the Roman authorities and become a tax collector for the Romans. He was viewed as a traitor. He was one of the disciples. And one of the other disciples was a guy named Simon, and they called him the zealot. Simon the zealot would do anything in order to overthrow the Roman government, including kill a Jewish tax collector. Listen, apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus Christ, those two people would kill each other if they were put in a room together. But they were unified and they worked together for the gospel. That's the power of Jesus. And that power does not reside in a democracy or in Donald Trump or in Hillary Clinton or in the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. It resides in one place, Jesus Christ and the filling of his Holy Spirit. I'm afraid that too many of us are being discipled by Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow and not by Jesus and his word and his body. And I will tell you, I have an emotional reaction to all of this and, and it's sadness. That's what it is. As a pastor, that just makes me sad. We'll quote Sean and Rachel like this. What about Jesus? I know he wept in John 11. Now, listen, if you feel scolded, I, really, I, I pray that you will forgive me. If you feel scolded today, I pray you'll forgive me. I'm removing my email from the website, so I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, uh, but maybe if you, feel, if you feel a little scolded, maybe you needed it. And some of you, I, I, if you feel I didn't go far enough, I pray you'll forgive me too. But maybe you're a little too intense. I don't know. I just want you to think about this and pray about this. The truth is, a pastor must, a pastor must. This was kind of the thing that got me going on this. Uh, we, we've been talking so much about how the church needs a prophetic voice in times like this, and I, and I agree with that, but nobody's talking about how we also need shepherds. You can't just beat people with a goad and not shepherd them. A, a pastor needs to be both prophet and shepherd, and sometimes, frankly, it's hard to tell which is which, Right? And I think we can all agree that lately there's been way too much heat and not enough light. So here's the deal. It's possible that we've never been in a time in the history of the American church when we need both bold prophetic correction and loving patient shepherding at the same time. I will also say this. We also need a little thicker skin. And we also need to put on the armor of God. That would be Ephesians chapter 6. Let me just read four verses to you. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I know you could debate this till the cows come home, and this is really hard. But the real enemy is not the Republican Party, and it's not the Democratic Party. The real enemy is not the ACLU. It's, it's nothing worldly. It's not. The real enemy is Satan. And the more he gets you distracted with his other stuff, the happier he is. We need to put on the armor of God. Paul writes, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We need the armor of God. And Redemption Church is surely not the only church wrestling with this. Everybody's wrestling with this. If their church is still alive, they're wrestling with it. So here's my proposal. Okay, that's good. There's a proposal at the end of this. Here's my proposal. This is everything I'm driving toward. Why can't we be the church that prays first, that seeks first the kingdom of God, that accepts that this is going to be very, very hard? Jesus told us in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. And then rise in unity to do gospel work by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God and God alone. Why can't we be that church? Why are we waiting for some other church to be that church? Let's do it ourselves. That's our call in the gospel, to love God and love our neighbors. And that neighbor, is, is, it means anybody that's in your life path. Love them. And here you go. Sometimes you have to intentionally veer off your current life path and go find somebody to love. So veer off your path occasionally and go find somebody to love that you wouldn't ordinarily love or that you think might be actually unlovable. That's what the gospel is. Or... The alternative is that we can go on worshiping this false god. And as we all know, false gods never fail to fail. So I've had each of these things described to me as ways that people have been persecuted. Now, let's recognize that some people are being persecuted, even in America. There's this thing that I'm now calling workplace dismissal. People being dismissed in the workplace, in the marketplace, because of their faith. They're dismissed as a person. They're experiencing something known as complete disconfirmation. People are actually acting like they don't even exist. They're dismissed for potential promotions. They're dismissed as potential candidates for employment because of their faith. That's hard, and that sounds like persecution to me. But I believe that the persecution is going to get even worse. The worst persecution is coming. Jesus said this was going to come. But we also need to be careful when we decide exactly what persecution is. Because if everything is persecution, then nothing is persecution. And real persecution gets trivialized. There are those across the globe who are suffering in ways that we cannot imagine. And they're suffering specifically for their faith. They're being executed, maimed, and mutilated. Because they're Christians. And you know what they do? They pray. They know they need Jesus more than ever. Most times, we don't know how much we really need Jesus until Jesus is all we have. I've said this a lot lately. The gospel is for desperate people. I want to ask us, here in Redemption Arcadia, do we know that we are desperate? 
We have so much here. We are so blessed. It's hard to feel desperate. But we can have the blessings of the marketplace, the blessings of wealth, the blessings of career, the blessings of power, the blessings of status, the blessings of technology, the blessings of comfort. We can have all of those things and not realize how truly desperate we are because without Jesus, we're nowhere. We are nowhere without Jesus. That's the only thing that really matters and really counts. Recently in my journal, I just remember writing this. I I am never more undone than when God reminds me of how faithfully I pursue the false God of comfort. Anybody else have comfort as a false God? Yeah, man, I relentlessly pursue that. And, And I'm never more undone than when God reminds me of that. And this passage right here today has reminded me of that. The disciples had real persecution. The very ones who killed Jesus are now grilling them. And, they, and here's how they responded. They responded with calm courage, with steadfastness, and with love. That's how they responded. When there is real resistance, remember, God is actually in charge. And here's one irony. Next week, we're actually going to find out that some of the worst damage that can be done to a church doesn't come from the outside, but comes from the inside. That's what we have to look forward to next week. So let's pray together. Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for recording this story in the book of Acts. And we just pray right now that you would fill us with your spirit and you'd give us this calm courage that the disciples had. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.